Welcome to Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. Do you sometimes feel alone in life with personal and interpersonal struggles and challenges? We'll show you that you are not alone and that you can learn and thrive from your challenges and thereby live a healthy life. Now, here is your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. As a licensed mental health therapist, I work in private practice in Sarasota, Florida, as well as working part-time at an undergraduate counseling and wellness center. My work is primarily relationship-based. That means that I establish a relationship with my client before I start helping them with what brought them to therapy. I also work with people on their relationships with others, and some of that work revolves around grief and trauma. Today's conversation on perspectives is going to be about a specific relationship, that between mothers and daughters. And in this case, we're going to be talking about women who lost their mothers at various stages of life, but lost them prematurely. So women who died from illness or tragedy at an unexpected age and the impact it has on their daughters specifically. To help us understand the unique attributes of the mother-daughter relationship as it relates to loss, We have the expertise of Hope Edelman. Hope is an expert in the field of early mother loss and mother-daughter relationships. She has authored seven nonfiction books, including the bestsellers Motherless Daughters, Motherless Mothers, and The Possibility of Everything. Her books have been published in 17 countries and 11 languages and have sold nearly a million copies. Motherless Daughters often considered required reading for any woman who has lost a mother, is now in its third edition and celebrated its 20th anniversary in print. Hope speaks all over the world and has appeared on television, including shows such as Today, Good Morning America, CNN, CBC, and Good Morning Australia. She is a trained life coach from Martha Beck International and provides one-on-one coaching through her company, Lose, Live, Grow to help individuals explore loss as a means for personal growth. Welcome, Hope. It is great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. There's so much to talk about on this topic, so I'd like to dive right in, if that's okay. And I would also like to add that this topic is especially dear to my heart. My mother passed away when I was 14 years old, and it was... um, a little expected and also completely unexpected, and I'm really thrilled to have you here to share some of your insights with us. So, Thank you. I, um, I'd like to start, if you could tell us a little bit about your own experiences, because you too lost your mother, and what prompted you to write uh, about being a motherless daughter and about coming up with that name? Sure. Well, my story is very similar to yours, Vadisha. I was 17. My sister was 14 when our mother died. We had a brother who also was nine. And although she had been diagnosed with breast cancer about a year and a half earlier, we had all thought and been told she was getting better. So when she had a very, very steep decline at the end, we experienced it like a sudden death. So it was expected and unexpected at the same time for the children in the family. And um, so I was 17. I was about to enter my senior year of high school. And I just plowed through the following year, got to college, um, 
was convinced that I had gone through the five stages of grief that were in the pamphlet I'd been handed in the hospital as my mom was dying (laughs) and discovered only later that, no, that isn't how it works and that isn't how it had worked for me. It kept recurring. There was uh, a lot of trauma at the end of her life that I'd never processed or addressed or had even been acknowledged for me. And so I went looking for a book to see... Um, what was happening and explain me to me and all the books I could find about mother loss assumed that women would be in their 40s or 50s or later. When it happened, there was such a, a, a gap in the literature about early mother loss and the effect it had on daughters. So ultimately, years later, I was in a graduate writing program and I went looking for the book again and couldn't find it and just decided to write it myself for myself and others like me because by that point I knew there were others out there. Well, we are all very thankful you did and I would like to share my story about how I discovered your book, which was completely by accident. Um, As I said, I lost my mother when I was 14 and about 15, 15 and a half years later, I was married recently married and living in Colorado where we knew nobody and had very little communication with our family because of the ease of communication was was not there as it as it is now and mm-hmm. i found myself in a place where I was just lost, and so I went to a bookstore to wander around, um, a, a lovely bookstore in Denver that um, had just felt very soothing, and I was walking up the stairs and on, literally on the railing of, uh, of the stairs, there was a book that said Motherless Daughters, and I picked it up. I thought, what an interesting title. I've never really heard that before because I had never viewed myself that way. And I started skimming through the book and about 45 minutes later and a huge puddle of tears later, I decided I better sit down and finish reading and then I better buy the book and take it home. And the transformation that happened there was just very basic. It was understanding that there were other people in the world that had mm-hmm. similar thoughts to mine and that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very if basic you, concept and mm-hmm. it, um, it, it's amazing how powerful it can be just knowing that you're not the only one who thinks that way. <laughs> if you were in a bookstore in Denver that had an upstairs, I'm guessing it was the Tattered Carver, which is an amazing bookstore in Denver. Is that right? That is exactly right. That is the bookstore. Yeah, beautiful <laughs> bookstore. I did a reading there, actually, when the book first came out. Um, yeah, I lead retreats now for motherless daughters, and we sit in a circle. There's usually 26 women um, in the group for each retreat, roughly, and there are such incredible stories about how women found the book. We call them origin stories. Because everything from I was, you know, I found it in an airport. Someone had left it behind on a chair or I was in a bookstore and it fell off the shelf and hit me in the head. You know, (laughs) the book has this energy of its own and it knows who needs to read it. I can't explain it and I can't claim any ownership over that. But it, it does seem to happen over and over again. And yes, feelings of isolation are um, paramount among 
women who lost moms when they were young for a number of reasons. Um, one is because if you lost a mom in the eras of the, of the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 90s, and, you know, even today in some cultures and some families, um, you may not have been allowed as a child to talk about her. It may have been that the adults around you could not tolerate seeing a child grieve and so didn't give the child an opportunity to express their feelings. They might have been told not to grieve because it would upset their surviving caretakers. Um, They learned to self-silence, perhaps, because if they did talk about it, they might not get the response that they were hoping for, and so they guard against their own disappointment. There are all kinds of reasons, but it's also, you know, it is not... A completely rare occurrence, but it's uncommon. I mean, I was in a big public high school, and I only know, I think, one other girl in the school whose mom had died. I later learned there were others, um, but we just weren't talking about it. So, yeah, I felt really isolated, and when I began interviewing women for the book... I discovered my tribe, in a sense. You know, sitting there listening to the interviews, I heard women speaking my thoughts. So I had the same experience as the author of the book, as the readers had later. And women were so eager to talk. I had no problem finding women to interview for the book. If anything, I had to start turning women down at a certain point so I could start writing it. Because once they did have an opportunity to speak and had permission to tell their story to someone who was interested, just came pouring out time after time. It was really remarkable. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I know from my family situation, and again, in in the school where I was studying at the time, and my brother was actually 17 when our mother died, and he was a senior in high school, and I was starting my freshman year in high school. Um, We didn't know of anybody else who'd lost their mother at that stage in life, and we later found that there were a few others. Um, But as much as people supported us, um, they didn't really go into the conversation. And I think sometimes it's because people don't know quite what to say, along with Mm -hmm. not giving you the space to talk about it. Um, That's right. And and the peer group really doesn't have the skills or the tools. I mean, I had good friends and, you know, I look back, I never blamed them at the time. Of course, I don't use the word blame now. I can understand they just didn't know how to cope with something of that magnitude or a loss of, you know, or a tragedy like that. And so, um, they, you know, would give me company, but... I don't think they knew what to say, and, you know, I had one or two friends who really just were sort of emotionally intelligent and just understood that really all you need to do is listen and be someone who can listen, and I had one friend at a different high school who, and we wrote long letters back and forth, even though we could have picked up the phone, we lived in the same, you know, neighboring towns, but um, expressing myself in those letters helped a lot, I kept a journal, but I still felt terribly isolated and over time that can translate into the message I'm alone nobody understands me and then an identity can start forming around that too and we see that at the retreats I say we because I I co-facilitate these retreats with various partners Um, I founded it with the author and the therapist Claire Bidwell-Smith and we've led the majority of them together and we see that when the women come and sit in the circle um, they often have been carrying this idea or this identity that I'm all alone and nobody understands me. And I've spent most of my life being understood. And as we go around the circle and they women begin to share some of their stories, 
you can see the women, other women just looking around thinking, whoa, actually, I'm not alone. In fact, there are 25 women in this circle who understand me you know, and understand what I've been through in a way that um, my peers, most of my peers, just can't. And the transformation in the four days that we spend together is really remarkable when they find you know, that, that those people really do understand them and the bonds that form there and the sisterhood becomes enduring. The women stay in touch after the retreat and we're forming a larger community and it's it's been really incredible to watch. Well, you you talk about the peer group, and um, my comment around that is a memory of being very resentful of my peers because, again, being 14, that was the height of adolescence, and it was mm-hmm. a time when uh, my peers, my female peers, were often rebelling against their parents and especially against their mm-hmm. mothers, and they would openly talk about um, arguments they had with their mothers or things that they disagreed with or things that were just horrible about their mothers. And I remember being so resentful, thinking to myself, at least you have a mother to fight with. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was never anything that I would verbalize because I didn't think that I had the right to verbalize that. But it brings up this other point of there are many different factors um, that you talk about that predict the unfolding of a daughter's grief at mother loss and that the age at which you lose your mother plays a significant role. Is there Mm -hmm. any age that's easier or harder than another? Oh, that's so hard to say because age is only one variable among a constellation of variables. Um, depends on what kind of relationship you had with your mom and, and how she died and what kind of family support exists after um, the historical era, the cultural environment. Um, but if we're just thinking, you know, in terms of cognitive development, right? Um, it appears that ages about ages 7 to 11 has an additional layer of complication, which is that children younger than that tend to not have a full understanding of what death is. So there's a lot of confusion. And that confusion can be exacerbated by adults who use euphemism or metaphor, you know, like mom has gone to a better place or, you know, mommy is um, gone away and she's not coming back or she's gone to sleep and she's never going to wake up. And all of that can have an effect on a child who thinks very literally and then is afraid to go to sleep or can't figure out what place is better than being with them. Right. Right. Um, So the child, we need to meet the children where they are, you know, kind of assess how much they can understand and work with that and then re-explain it and re-explain it as they develop and grow into more cognitive and emotional maturity. But those kids between about, again, it varies from child to child, but about 7 to 11 um, are, which I think is around the the pre-operational operational stage in Piaget and development. Uh-huh. They are developing a cognitive understanding of what death means, which is you know, really sad and scary for a child to understand, but they don't get to have the emotional maturity to really cope with that confusion or that fear. And if they don't have adults around them who are able to bolster them and see them through that, and not a lot of children do, and I'll, I'll go into why in a moment, but... Um, so those kids are the ones who are most likely to just stuff those feelings because they just don't know how to deal with them. 
and right. they'll stop them, and they will then, you know, show up in other ways later in life very often because it's hard to keep that down because, you know, involuntarily sometimes you know, there will be an external trigger and it will just pop up, and it will right. show up in different ways that even the individual isn't aware of, um, and the family certainly may not be aware of it. Like if a boy lost a mom or a girl lost a mom, um, or a dad, for that matter, when they were very young and were just told not to talk about it and had to develop this, you know, understanding of what happened on their own. Let's say that happened when they were six or seven. Uh-huh. And then, you know, at 15 or 16, they're really acting out in various ways. There may not be anyone around to connect those dots backwards and realize exactly. unexpressed grief from early childhood showing up now, you see, and... Well, it gets gets complicated. It's very complicated. Because um, when you bring adolescence into it, it becomes even more complicated because you don't know this acting out that you just mentioned, whether it's related simply to the individuation through adolescence or if it's, as you Mm -hmm. said, related to a a parent loss or a mother loss as well. Um, And it could be a combination of the two. It could be multiple things. So it it does make it challenging. Um, I want to continue this conversation, but we need to take a short commercial break. So please stay tuned. We're talking about mother-daughter relationships and mother loss. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me at drv4kids at yahoo.com. And we will be right back to continue our conversation with Hope Edelman. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Dr. Vadisha Patel is a licensed mental health counselor working at Peace of Heart LLC in Sarasota, Florida. Peace of Heart offers individual counseling with children and adults, as well as programs in stress reduction. Dr. Patel utilizes a relationship-based approach to treatment. She is currently accepting new patients. To find out more, visit peaceofheartllc.com or in Florida, call 941-539-1727. Again, that's peaceofheartllc.com or call 941-539-1727. Peace of Heart LLC, managing emotions for a healthier lifestyle. Have you ever stopped to think that most of the time your health is related to your lifestyle? If you eat right, hopefully you'll live well, sleep the way you should, and you're likely to be healthy. Stress and bad food could mean a shorter and more unpleasant life. Hidden Secrets to Health with host Christina Cole helps you decode the messages your body sends you. The right changes mean the right impact on your health. Start by tuning in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel, and I'm in conversation with Hope Edelman, author, life coach, and expert in the field of early mother loss and mother-daughter relationships. Hope, we were talking a little bit about the age that it's, if there is an age that's the most challenging to lose your Mm -hmm. mother, and then how we often see the impact of that loss that may have been not necessarily ignored, but maybe stuffed um, coming out in adolescence. Right. right. I, yeah, there are many different terms for that. I, I like um, unexpressed or unattended grief. I think that, that sort of covers it. Uh, yeah, adolescence is really tricky. And I know both of us can speak about this from personal experience, too. But if you are either grieving a loss during adolescence that occurred during adolescence or one that occurred earlier that you're trying to process, you know, at this more mature emotional or intellectual state, you've got two jobs. And one is to manage all of the normal developmental tasks of adolescence and, and doing it without that parent who would otherwise ideally, you know, aid or guide or support you or contain you through some of them. And also then manage the demands of grief, which is a lot, you know, for a teenager to have to handle. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit about the peer group. You know, what I found is that sometimes teenagers really can help each other through grief if they're suffering a loss together. They tend to really help each other if a friend dies, for example. Right? right. Um, they can come together and mourn together and grieve together in a way that, you know, they can meet each other where they all are. But when you're the one who's had a loss and you're different from everybody else, and adolescence is a terrible time to feel different from everybody else because you're, you're trying to individuate and conform at the same time. So that's a normal developmental task of adolescence, right? But when something right. has happened that, you know, sort of objectively makes you different from your peers, you don't have a mom anymore and they all do. Um, then, then that compounds it or amps up that feeling that, that already exists during that time. And to your point a little earlier, Vadisha, if I could just add this, you know, this, this idea of, you know, being around friends who are complaining about their moms, I hear that a lot. I hear them on adults too, you know, adults saying, oh, my friends, you know, they're complaining that their mom is too controlling as a grandmother or that they have to take care of their mom as she's aging. And I wish my mom were here to be a controlling grandmother or I wish I could take care of her in her elderly years. Um, so that never really, that never really ends, you know. And, of course, we don't want our friends to hide their frustrations from us especially our good friends. But at the same time, we don't really want to be reminded that we don't have stresses in our lives at the same time that we might feel, you know, honestly a little bit grateful that we don't at the same time. So it's, it's very complicated. There's so many layers. It's not nothing, nothing in this experience is black and white. Yes. Or black um, or white. Yeah. It's definitely um, multifaceted in, in your book, motherless daughters, you, 
have a, a quote by somebody that talks about it, that it's almost a rite of passage in a woman's life to be able to come back to her mother and be friends to meet on an equal ground. Mm-hmm. But when she's there, mm-hmm. not there, you can't do that, which is where a motherless daughter right. is. Um, and this right. person says that I felt kind of like I was in limbo waiting for something to fill that void. Some way I could mm-hmm. have that coming back and I can't but it's kind of haunting because the need doesn't go away. So mm-hmm. um, there is this lack of completion um, in that mm-hmm. circle of, mm-hmm. of when you lose your mother. Um, and so to your point, yes, even, even now as a parent, um, there are peers who have their mother still around and, their conversations are very different. And so there is still this sense of isolation at one level because they don't have that experience. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, how, how you balance, how you balance the listening to them and supporting them, but not really wanting to know <laughs> um, about right. some of those issues. Um, That's right. And that is a very common experience to, you know, it, and it's a very Western experience too, I need to point out, because not all cultures have this separation during adolescence and a reunion in their 20s. That is a very sort of Western paradigm. I mean, I know among the Latino women that I've interviewed and gotten to know quite well, there isn't the same kind of break all the time during those teenage years. And there are other cultures where the mothers and daughters stay close. So it's a, it's a devastating loss for slightly different reasons. Um, yeah. But in the 20s, there is, you know, this sense, especially, you know, like if you go away to college and then you enter your life or you get married in your 20s, you know, that you might, you probably will start seeing your mom as more of a peer. Um, I have a daughter now who's 21, and we relate on such a different level than we did when she was 16, for example. And and it's much more, you know, of an adult kind of playing field. We're still mother and daughter, but I think we have, a, you know, developing awareness of each other that's maturing over time. And if your mom died when you were younger, you don't have the opportunity to see that relationship mature in real life. There are ways that you can do it in virtual reality or in the imaginal world. And for some women, that's very important, especially if they... Um, had some kind of break with their mom when they were teenagers. And I also need to acknowledge that not every woman has a good relationship with their mom, right? Not every woman right. would want to come back and reconnect with her in her 20s, and not every mother is capable of doing that. So it is, you know, there, there are many stories where a mom may be suffering from addiction or mental illness or there's estrangement, and that daughter might still yearn for that connection in her 20s, but not be able to have it for other reasons. So I just don't want to assume that just because a mom is alive, that that's a possibility. Those right. women have an experience very similar to those whose moms have died around that's, that time. But there's a real lack of research on, on how to cope with loss in your 20s as well. And, I, I, you know, it's a significant loss in that decade, too. It's a significant loss at any time in your life, just for different uh, reasons. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the point about uh, mothers who are still living, but estranged from their daughters, because, yes, this is, not, you know, there is no, we can't make a 100% generality about any of this. And there are multiple types of relationships that fall under this general category of motherless daughters, if we can say that. Um Another point you brought up that I wanted to follow for a little bit is this um, concept of 
being the motherless daughter and now having a daughter um, yourself and then reaching the age that you that you, where your daughter reaches the age where you were when your mother died um, what I find happens is that you have no sense of what it would be like to be a parent to a child older than that because you only have the experience of the mothering to that to that age mm-hmm. uh, and so that's huge that's, that's the, to me, that's another, yeah. that's a, that's a milestone. And the other milestone mm-hmm. is when the motherless daughter reaches the age that her mother passed away um, or disappeared from her life. Um, that is correct. So how, do you have suggestions for how to navigate around those? Mm-hmm. I do. Um, and I'm going to try to condense it because I could talk about that for an hour or two. It's so important in the lives of this pop- of the women in this population. In fact, on my Facebook authors page just the other day, um, I posted an article um, from Australia, I believe, where a woman was writing about reaching the age her mom was when she died. And I just, you know, there was an outpouring of comments, even in the first hour that it was posted, from women who were talking about making that very significant transition, which, of course, they're making much younger than most of their peers. If your mom died at 27 or 36, or in my case, 42, right? right? It's a big deal to reach that age, partly because you realize, oh, my God, it was so young. You know, as a child, she was my mom. I I mean, I remember, honestly, being 17, thinking, wow, you know, she died way too young, but, you know, 42, she already got married, she had her cousin. <laughs> exactly. The concept of how incredibly young 42 is until I turned 42 myself and I was like, whoa. So my <laughs> friends were teaching yoga classes. They were still having babies, some of them. They were, you know, at the pri- not even yet at the prime of their professional lives. It was really quite something. But yes, a, a lot of women in that thread said that even more significant for them was when their child reached the age that they were because they could look and see how young that child was, how dependent that child still was, and they remembered oftentimes how they had to grow up so quickly, how they had felt that they were much older than they actually were because of the responsibilities that they had to take on. Right. And um, so that, yes, and the idea of not being knowing how to parent your child beyond that age is something I hear all the time. I have two daughters, actually. One is 21, the other one just turned 17. So now I've taken both kids further than my mom brought me as a child. And when the first one passed that threshold, I remember thinking, well, you know, it was more of a, you know, sort of a projection, you know, a fear that I was projecting because I was thinking I'm not going to know how to be a mom to her beyond the age of 17. And the truth is I'd been with her almost every day for 17 years and we had a relationship and we just were going to extend that relationship. And I knew her pretty well, I think. And there were certainly things I didn't know about her. But, um, but you know, for privacy reasons. But um, there were, um, I, you know, I, I managed. You know, I, I tell women, you're, you'll figure it out. You know your kid. You know, if you've been her mom for 17 years or 15 years or 9 years or, or his for 12 years, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. There are blind spots. I do have blind spots. And um, 
But, you know, the truth is I'm parenting my children and, and, you know, anyone listening to this who's parenting children now are parenting them in a really different era than we were raised in. I don't know how much I could apply, right? You know, like there was this idea I had like, wow, when I went to college, you know, um, everyone talked to their parents once a week because it was Sundays and the long distance rates went down, right? Right, exactly. My kid can text me, you know, four times a day. And so I, I can't, it's not an, you know, it's not an apples to apples comparison to begin with. Um, when my younger daughter turned 17, I did have this moment where I thought, oh, I made it. You know, my, like my, my biggest part of this job is done, which is kind of, you know, ridiculous in a way. I mean, I'm still their mom and they still need me. But there was a part of me that felt like I had achieved a personal goal. I got both of them, you know, to that point, and I sort of somehow knew if something happens to me, they'll be okay, because that's how far my, you know, my mom brought me, and yes, I had struggles, and yes, it was hard, but yes, I've also had a good life, and it's okay. Well, that brings brings up a memory to me um, on the anniversary of my mother's death. My son was 14, starting his freshman year in high school and he waited for the carpool and didn't like me to be anywhere he wanted to wait by himself so I could see Mm -hmm. him from a window and I remember the split second when I realized oh my gosh that was me because I used to wait outside for the carpool Mm -hmm. and didn't want anybody else to be there waiting with me and that Mm -hmm. was the age that was the day that my mother had passed away. So, yes, I think these these dates sort of come up and they they take us back a little bit and for you it was a it sounds like it was a sign of relief that you made it. And for me it was a realization that oh my gosh, this is this is how far we've come. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, when women say or they say they're afraid of these things happening or they're anticipating it with, you know, some reservations, I say yes, you know, it may reactivate some grief. You know, you may need to process whatever comes up at that time, and maybe you couldn't process it before because you really couldn't grieve, like, for example, I couldn't grieve my mom's absence, uh, you know, as a grandmother until I was holding my first child. Like, I couldn't even do that when I was pregnant because I just didn't know what it was going to feel like to have a baby and not have her be there until the baby was actually there. But it also creates opportunities. Too creates opportunities to process those pieces, you know, that haven't been processed yet. And um, so, you know, it gave me a, a big boost also to think, ah, I got them there. You know, yeah, I got them there. And yes, of course, intellectually, I know they still need me, and I'm still here right. for them, and I hope that I will be for a very long time, still yet to come, but also to feel this sense of accomplishment and a bit of triumph and feeling like, yeah, Mom, you know, look, look Mom, I did it. I got them there, right? I've right. outlived my mom by I've outlived my mom by twelve years now, which is kind of remarkable to me every time I say that. Because wow, I mean I still feel so young and I'm still and I'm healthy and active and just this idea that she died twelve years ago, it's just it's astonishing to me. Now it seems really young in a way that I, it, you know, each year it seems younger and younger. And to be older exactly. than your mother is just weird. It is. Have you had that transition yet? I have. I constantly have that transition, and I am. Mm-hmm. I find that it. I'm amazed that I'm still here. <laughs> it's um, instead of being sad now, 
at each mm-hmm. anniversary of our passing, I'm impressed that I'm still here and we're I'm still doing this. Um, but I have I wanted to go back to this these key um, moments of marriage of becoming yeah. pregnant of when your child mm-hmm. is born when you're stuck in a difficult right. mothering situation. So there is this mm-hmm. constant grieving that happens over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it happens in different ways each time. So it's not necessarily it the same type of grief or the same trauma being opened up. It's maybe at different levels. Um, mm-hmm. No, agree. And at different stages. I'm- but it, it, um, I think it also frames how we parent and mm-hmm. how we make the choices of what we're go- what we expect of our kids and how we're going to be and mm-hmm. i am just getting the notification that we have yet another short commercial break so mm-hmm. um, we're going to continue this conversation when we come back so don't go away we're going to talk some more about the parenting aspect of mother daughter relationships and the impact of premature mother loss Um, So we'll be right back with Hope Edelman on Perspectives. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Dr. Vadisha Patel is a licensed mental health counselor working at Peace of Heart LLC in Sarasota, Florida. Peace of Heart offers individual counseling with children and adults, as well as programs in stress reduction. Dr. Patel utilizes a relationship-based approach to treatment. She is currently accepting new patients. To find out more, visit peaceofheartllc.com or in Florida, Call 941-539-1727. Again, that's peaceofheartllc.com or call 941-539-1727. Peace of Heart LLC, managing emotions for a healthier lifestyle. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Can you truly expand your possibilities beyond what your normal capabilities are? It's very possible when you can know more, do more, and be more. Tune in each week to Shift Happens with host Karin Weary. The world is waiting for you to show off your unique gifts. It starts with healing yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Once the scars of our past are gone, we can truly begin to shine. Listen live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into one 866 
1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to the last segment of our show today. You're listening to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. Please get in touch via email to drv4kids at yahoo.com with any questions and comments. I'm here with Hope Edelman, author, coach, and expert on mother-daughter relationships and mother loss. And Hope, I want to move into our conversation now more on on the motherless mothers and the parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if you could also talk a little bit about these, this, this grieving process with these key dates that come back, these key moments in our lives. Um, right. So well, to- um, I'm working on a new book now about the lifelong arc of grief. And this is a big part of what I believe makes grief, especially after an early loss, a lifelong process. Because there are these recurring events or milestone events that you know, ask us and or require us to revisit and reprocess and reframe different aspects of what we have lost. And um, I, I identify, you know, three main types of these reactions. The first one is the classic anniversary reaction, where there's a date on the calendar that comes around every year. It might be Mother's right. Day, it might be your mother's birthday, Thanksgiving maybe, you know, it being a family holiday, um, there, there are a number of those that will recur every year. And it's, you know, we're aware that they're coming and we can prepare for them. The best, best suggestion I have is, you know, if you feel, you know, that one of those is coming, is to find a way to make your mom part of that day. This is the whole concept of continuing bonds, which is where the grief theory has really moved into this idea that we need to stay connected to our loved ones after they die, not find a way to get over it or leave them behind. So to do something on that day that, you know, whether it's on Mother's Day, you know, sharing pictures of your childhood and your mom with your kids, or telling friends stories about your mom, or connecting with a sibling, you know, to remember her on that day, whatever it is, making one of her favorite recipes, planting her favorite flowers. Women have all kinds of creative ways of remembering their mother on her birthday or, you know, on Mother's Day. Then there are also these um, milestone events like the life transitions, like graduations, weddings, um, becoming a mother, for example, that are quite significant um, because you are moving into a different phase of life without someone that you would have hoped would be there to support you and perhaps someone that many of your peers do have in their lives to support them. And then the third one are these what are called age correspondence events, the one that you just mentioned, which are those reaching the age your mom was when she died, um, your child reaching the age that you were. Uh, and then there are smaller ones, too. Like, I remember when I reached the age my dad was when he lost his spouse. I'm looking at my family and thinking, wow, you know, that must have been really hard for him. How did he deal with that? That would be so hard now. I right. think different choices as a result, which is to your point about how this does affect our parenting. You know, we do get a sense of what we do want to do and what we don't want to do as a result of what we experienced as kids. Well, I think, um, and sometimes it re- it results in a lot of protective parenting and that mm-hmm. you want to be there for every step of everything your children do because 
one, you don't know if you'll live long enough to experience everything. Um, two, you don't want to, you don't want your children to miss out on getting to know you in case you're not around and a multitude of other reasons as well. Um, mm-hmm. But again, we don't always, if, if we parented that way, we don't necessarily know the impact that it has on our children. It could actually have a negative impact on them if it's too extreme. Um, but there's also, it's a hard to know how to assess. Are you being a good mother? Are you parenting appropriately? Um, so those, those challenges also come up. Right. And, you know, when I wrote Motherless Mothers, I did uh, do, and it was not a completely scientific survey, but it, I think, you know, if it had been the margin of error, so, you know, there still would have been, a, it still would have held up you know, under those statistical analyses that um, I, inter- I surveyed women who had lost mothers before the age of 25 and adult women mothers whose mothers were still living to see um, how many reported that they had a sense of the fragility of life and were afraid of dying young and needed to prepare their children. Uh And when I asked, um, how often do you have the thought, life is fragile, our time together may be short, Um, 61% of the motherless mothers said that they often think that versus only 30% of the women whose mothers were still alive. And when I asked about, I need to, how often do you think I need to prepare my children for the possibility of my early death? Um, 63% of the women whose mothers were still alive said, no, I never think about that. But only 26% of the women whose mothers had died said, I never think about that. So, you know, that, that, these were thoughts that were on their mind more so than the other women, according to, you know, these questionnaires. But they really did have a sense, life is fragile, it could end at any moment. I need to prepare my kids for my, you know, the possibility that I could leave them too early. But at the same time, they had this sense that I want to make the most of every day and be the very best parent I can be in whatever time I do get. And it often made them extremely committed, you know, engaged mothers. Yes, yes, I I can see where that would be the case because it is that fine balance. You you're afraid that the time will disappear before you know it, so you want to make the most of it. And so I think if you err towards making the most of each day, I think that makes us mm-hmm. better parents in many ways because I agree. it, it I takes a positive. And I think that's an example of what's called post-traumatic growth, this idea that you can, you know, that loss can become a springboard for personal growth. And that doesn't mean just like starting a company. It can mean (laughs) committing to being a really good parent, that, you know, my mom wasn't here to see me through these years, so I'm going to make sure I'm really there to help my kids through those you know, through those transitions and those milestones, or or I'm just going to, you know, be the best mom I can be on a day-to-day basis and be really consciously because um, I didn't get to have that when I was a kid. Right. One of the things we haven't talked about is um, when the the father who survives remarries or there are other Mm. um, female relatives who who want or try to step in. And again, I think culturally it's different around the world. I know in India with many, the concept of the joint family and the concept of family being very close and connected, there is often this situation where 
other women in the family try to step in and try to, they're -hmm. just trying to help and provide support. But again, Mm -hmm. as the motherless daughter, there can be some resentment there. Or Mm -hmm. if the father remarries, um, that that creates a whole host of other um, issues Mm -hmm. for the motherless daughter, both for herself and also when she has children, because now Mm -hmm. the grandmother is is the grandmother to the children because that's what they know, but they also have another grandmother that they may not know. That's right. Oh, there's a lot in that. Yes, there is. Um, You know, what I've found is that if the daughter was already close with the extended family, meaning the aunts and grandmothers, she's much more likely to accept them, not necessarily as substitutes, but as support afterward, and those relationships can become even deeper. But if the aunt or grandmother steps in and there isn't a prior relationship, that can be really confusing for a kid. And there may be this sense of, you're not my mom, you know, operating there. I wish I could say that the stepmother-stepdaughter relationship becomes an adequate substitute most of the time, but it's actually the rare exception when it does. And that's in part because the daughter, has, sometimes the stepmother enters the family very quickly. You know, the dads, especially dads of the 70s and the 80s, um, were not well-versed in childcare and often, you know, would grieve through action, which is often meant dating. And right. another woman might enter the household quickly, too quick for the kids because they're still attached to their moms and then no one is honoring that attachment anymore. And I've heard stories where, you know, the stepmother comes in six months later and the, and the kids are told, this is your new mom. You need to call her mom. I'm like, oh, wait, what? I had a mom. No one will talk about her. The pictures came down. What's going on? And so, you know, I, I found that the long-term relationship between girls and their fathers tends to be much better if the dad waits at least a year and ideally two before he, you know, gets serious with another woman or remarries or even seriously dates. Uh, that's hard for some dads to do, especially if the children are young. Right. But, um, well, that, was, that was the other question. It, it, does it, it matter? At, does it matter how old yeah. the children are? You know, I think each family really has its own individual makeup and individual story. Uh, um, it, it, it's the little kids are often happy to have someone in to take care of them if the dad hasn't been doing such a good job after the mom died or if there was neglect while the mom was sick, for example. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is a loss by suicide, yes. which is a devastating loss for a child. And there's often been a lot of disruption in the family before that happens because the mom may have been struggling with depression or mental illness and maybe not available to parent for a while before that, right. that you know, before the, that tragedy. So, um, but stepmothers are not, you know, you know, in their defense, they're not often prepared for what they're about to take on to enter a family where there might be several grieving children whose grief has not been attended to. And, um, you know, don't often know. And then they're, they're embarking on a new life with a man. And then there's this, that's, you know, often a complicating factor. Right. And so these families really need support and assistance from the outside if they're willing to get it because they can be helped through that transition. But any woman entering that family really, you know, needs some, you know, education and support to be able to have a good relationship with those kids. When the kids are older, it tends to, you know, be better. She won't typically come in and become a substitute for that. They're very rarely asked to call her mom if they're in their teens or 20s. Um, they might do it by choice, but usually they, they won't. 
but they can often see her as the father's wife and understand they want the father to be happy. Right. Younger kids, younger kids, that's not the case. Younger kids are still, you know, hoping to get their needs met and their needs need to be met and they're dependent on those adults. Right. Well, um, I've had people say to me that um, they want their father to be happy and they want their father to be taken care of. And they, as, as the daughters, are not necessarily physically available because they don't live in the same city or the same country. Mm-hmm. And so if the father has somebody who can support him, then it's better for everybody. So mm-hmm. that's right. a now situation that would be what a where it's... Might say. Not an eight-year-old, right? But for right. the older girls, that is definitely yeah. The older girls have the ability to see the bigger picture because they're more capable of meeting more of their own needs at that time. Yeah, right. So it it gets complicated because there are so many different factors to consider: ages, personalities, and it's a combination. It's not. It's not just the daughter in the family mm-hmm. who lost the mother, they're often siblings. Um, mm-hmm. And so then it's the relationship between the siblings as well. Uh, so do you have um, sort of tips for people to help them understand this process? Do you have suggestions for other books? Yours is the one I would recommend, Motherless Daughters and Motherless Mothers, but are there other resources mm-hmm. that you would also recommend people look at? Um, you know, there are quite a few good books out there. There are also some really terrific websites and podcasts. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, and there are there are two that I would recommend. One is um, the podcast put out by the Dougie Center in Portland, Oregon. Um, it used to be, it, it just, it was just renamed and given a new name. I think it might be Grief Talks now. But, you know, it's D-O-U-G-Y dot org. You just go to the podcast. They've got almost a hundred 20-minute podcasts on so many different facets of grief and adults bereaved as children, as well as how to help children today. There's so many volunteer opportunities now for helping kids who lost parents, if that's something that listeners would like to do. I really encourage them to get some support and do their own work first before they go to the kids because you, you want to work with kids to help the kids, not to heal yourself primarily, although right. that is often, you know, a subsidiary effect. That, and that you're still have. doing you're still doing your retreats? I'm doing my retreats, motherless daughters retreats dot com. And we have um, three retreats coming up this year, two for early loss, that would be loss up to age 21, and then another one just for women who were in their 20s when their moms died. And um, there's another podcast called Griefcast that comes out of the UK that's excellent. It's not just about mother loss, but um, that's a, it's educational and entertaining at the same time. So I would recommend those two for sure. Okay. And then okay. if you're interested in keeping your mom's memory alive, um, there's a really wonderful book called Past, P-A-S-S-E-D, and Present by Alison Gilbert that is full of information and really innovative ideas for how to do that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I want to make sure that, that I take the time to read a quote from the epilogue of your book, Motherless Daughters, because it just speaks to me about how we're constantly shifting and adjusting and changing who we are as motherless daughters. And it says, Mm -hmm. 
Um, in, in your words, sometimes I'm the devoted, dutiful daughter of a loving and selfless mother. Other times I'm the selfish and rebellious teenager of a woman frustrated by the self-defeating choices she made. Most often I'm a woman looking for an answer or at least for a clue, still trying to understand how such a tragic loss could have happened, exactly how it's molded me and how I can prevent it from happening to me again. Um, I think that that's just beautiful because there's no, just when we find an answer, it's kind of like parenting, just when you think you found the answer, there's another shift or another date or something that comes up that throws you off and Mm -hmm. um, you're back to that same thought process all over again. Mm So yes, you are. Um, what I say is that the facts of a loss never change, right? My mom will always have died at the age of 42 of breast cancer when I was 17, but our relationship to those facts changes over time. It really shapes shifts. Those facts looked one way when I was 17. They looked really different when I was 30, and they look even more different now. Yeah, that's beautiful. So thank you so much for joining us today on Perspectives. I've been talking to Hope Edelman about mother-daughter relationships and the impact that mother loss has on women, how they live, react, and respond. Hope, thank you for joining us today. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host for Perspectives. I look forward to being back with you next week for another edition. Feel free to email me at drvforkids at yahoo.com. Have a wonderful week. Until next time. Thank you for listening to our program this week. Another edition of Perspectives with Dr. Vidisha Patel can be heard next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until we talk again, have a lovely week.